Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. Hey, good morning, ACF Church. How you guys doing? Welcome to church today. We're so glad uh, that you're with us. We also want to welcome everybody who's streaming live with us online. Can we welcome them this morning? Thanks for being with us. Let's clap for them. Come on. We're glad that you're with us today. It's going to take a little training. Uh, we're doing some experimenting here with Facebook Live. And so if you're with us live on Facebook, uh, we'd love it if you'd hit the uh, share button and uh, just share what God is doing here at ACF Church with your friends today. So uh, we are in a series called Explicit Grace. And this is going to be a series of eight talks uh, discussing the book of Romans. And uh, if you're new today, you are on week two. So you, you, you're here right uh, just at the beginning of this journey. Uh, the challenge that I've set out is that we would read through the book of Romans once a week. And and if you're the kind of person that you don't really know where to begin when you pick up your Bible, uh, this is a great way for you to prepare your heart for what we're talking about here and to be ready for this discussion. Uh, I really believe that if you've read through it beforehand, this whole talk is going to come to life. It's going to make a lot more sense. Uh, you'll have a lot more chances for good conversation before and after church. And so uh, lots of good stuff going on uh, at ACF. Uh, we, we, we threw out a couple weeks ago that we're going to be doing Easter at Eagle River High School, which you guys, I'm so excited about this. Uh, lots of plans in the works for that. It's going to be a huge weekend. Uh, we need you to be involved. We, uh, we're going to need about 280 volunteers to make that whole weekend happen. And so uh, basically all of you need to go sign up right after church. I think um, we've got almost 100 signed up so far. We'd love it if you guys could uh, jump into that, be a part of making that happen. I am uh, convinced that you'll be more blessed uh, than anybody just by serving and being a part of that. So uh, just big stuff going on there as well. Let's stand up together. I want to start off by reading God's Word, and uh, we'll just stand in honor of that. This is 2 Timothy, Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 1, and this is a, a, a writing from Paul to Timothy. Timothy is essentially Paul's apprentice, and this is written about six years after Paul wrote his letter to Rome, and these are the words that he has for Timothy. He says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word today. Thank you for uh, the letter uh, to, the, to the book of, the, to Rome and God that it's to us today that um, it, it's just as relevant for us here and now as it's always been. Father, open our hearts, open our ears. I pray you'd bring conviction where we need conviction and encouragement where we, we need encouragement, God, and uh, that, that we can move forward here together as a community. Uh, we pray you'd be with us, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. 
Okay, so harsh words uh, about the state of things in the end. So it's a challenge for Timothy to uh, stay the course and deal with some of the, the, the challenges that are going to come um, as people are lovers of self, and then he goes into a whole list of issues. Um, this is going to be a hard talk, just like last week, but here's the good news. Um, in Romans, Romans chapter 3, Paul is going to transition from talking about the depravity of mankind to to, to talking about the solution that we have in Jesus. And so there is good news coming. Uh, if, you, if you were here last week and you came back, thank you. I'm glad. Uh, it was a hard talk last week as we discussed essentially how broken we are. And uh, I made the statement that we first have to descend into this place of hopelessness, realizing we have nothing apart from Jesus for us to fully embrace the hope that we have in Jesus. And so we first have to deal with how broken we are. And that is just not fun. It's really difficult to hear. I told my staff this week, I was like, you know what? I think this is going to fix our space issues. Um, if I just keep preaching Romans, uh, the crowd is going to shrink. Because this is not fun to hear. It's not fun to hear that we are not good at our core. As people apart from Jesus, that's not fun to hear. Most of us really want to believe that we are good. And that's why we called this series Explicit Grace. Because to receive it, and to understand it means that you're probably going to be offended in one way or another and going to have to wrestle through that. And so I want to read this passage in 2 Timothy to start us off because he lists out all of these sins, all of the, the things that people will give themselves to. And he says, this is how you'll know that the last days are here. And I don't know about you, but I read all of this and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I see most of this in myself right now and in the world around me. And, and you're just forced to go, man, this is, the times are getting rough and this stuff is only multiplying. And he starts off by saying lovers of self. And he goes into this myriad of, of sins and issues. And I really think Paul chose to say lovers of self first because I think that what he's trying to get at is that love of self is actually almost like the sewage pipe through which all of the other sins flow. It just kind of begins with this love of ourselves. And in a society that I think really elevates the love of yourself, hey, just you need to love yourself more, do things to, to love yourself, that, that Paul is like, no, be careful with that. Be careful how much you love yourself, how much you think of yourself. And so the first part, the first three chapters of Romans has been set aside to help us see who we really are, to kind of deal with this love of self. And so I feel a little bit like um, I am sort of that friend that's just going to have to sit down and be honest with you. And that's kind of how uh, this, this beginning of this series is going to be. It's, have you ever had somebody that loved you enough to just be honest with you? That just loved you enough to tell you the truth? That's, that's what Paul is doing. That's what I feel like as I'm, as I'm studying this and sharing this that I'm doing. Um, it's just being honest about who we are so that we can move forward from this place. So I've entitled this this morning House Fire. And uh, I told a story about what happened in our house a, a few months ago, but if you, if you didn't hear, uh, we had a house fire a while back. Uh, we were out on a walk as a family, and we were about a quarter mile from our house, and my, my phone started ringing from my neighbor. Uh, and we only have each other's phone numbers, mostly just to let the other know if, like, somebody's breaking into the basement or, you know, something's going wrong with our houses. We don't talk too often on the phone. And so he called me, which I thought was strange. I picked it up, and he's like, Brian, are you home? And I'm like, no. 
why? And he goes, get home. Your house is on fire. And so like we go running around the neighborhood. I got like children over my shoulder. My wife, she's like a quarter mile back trying to like gather the other kids together. And we come around the corner and there's smoke billowing out of my garage and police and fire department. All my neighbors are outside, you know, watching the show. And uh, so I show up and it's just a mess. My garage is a total loss. It's, it's smoke damage and soot. And it's the kind of stuff that you just, you can't clean the kind of smell that is on your stuff after a house fire. And so a few days later, the insurance adjuster shows up and she takes one step into the garage and she's like, it's all going to need to be thrown away. Like, it's just, this is a total loss. You just need to get rid of everything, start cleaning it out. And so if you know anything about me, you know I'm a little thrifty. Um, which is my way of saying I'm kind of cheap. I, I like to hold on to things. I don't like to throw things away. Um, and, and so I'm going through all of my stuff, and you guys know that there couldn't have been like a worse room to have a house fire than the garage, right? This is like where all of my stuff is. Uh, this is my favorite room in the house. It's the garage. And so I'm pulling out like tools that I have sentimental attachment to, this angle grinder that my wife got me when we first got married. It's like one of the family, right? And it's covered in soot, you know, and, and, and so I'm, I'm pulling all this junk out to be thrown away, and then pretty soon by the end of it, I had this whole pile of stuff that I was going to restore and fix, right? Because I'm going to hold on to as much as I can. And so like a day later, I needed to cut this piece of tile, and so I, I got my angle grinder that I love and uh, cleaned off all the soot, and it looked pretty good on the outside. And I start cutting through the piece of tile, and about two inches into this 12-inch tile, flames start coming out of the side of this angle grinder. And I've got my gloves on, and I'm like, come on, baby, keep going. Nine inches left. And I get down to like six inches, and smoke starts billowing at it. And it just gets louder and louder until finally the thing just shuts off. And this big white cloud of smoke comes out of my grinder. And I realized in that moment I should have tossed the thing in the ash heap with all of the other stuff. But I, I don't like to throw things away. I don't like to give things up. I want to restore what I can. And what I feel like Paul is trying to get at here with the book of Romans is that our, our home, like our lives, aren't just like a hole in the drywall. They're like a total house fire. I mean, everything is a total loss. And what you and I do is we try to hold on to things. We've all got something that we're using to attain a feeling of, of holiness or rightness before God. We all have something that we're holding on to. And we're constantly trying to resurrect our good deeds to, to make our way into the kingdom of God. And Paul wants to make it really clear, and he's hammering at home, we are broken people. And as he writes to Timothy, all of these things, I, I think that we can, many of us see all of these things, especially pride and, and self-love and, and arrogance in ourselves. We can see those things. I can see those things in myself. And so I know that I need to hear what it is that he has to say. So good news uh, we're going to transition in, in chapter 3. If you want to open up to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He's going to talk a little bit about the law. He's going to talk about what the law is. And as he speaks to this mainly Jewish audience, for these Jews, for many of them, the law was their thing that they were holding on to. It, it, was, it was what they were using. Just follow the rules, be right on the outside, and, and somehow that's going to help us to attain righteousness. It's going to help us to attain rightness before God. It says this in Romans 3, uh, verse 21. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
Okay, so this would have been one of those moments that if they were reading this out, lo- out loud, it would be like a, like a pin dropping in the room. You could hear anything because people would have been shocked by this statement. This would have been almost an offensive statement that you could, you could experience righteousness apart from the law. And, and what would have happened is people would have thought, well, then what's the point of the law? Why the law then? Why the Ten Commandments? Why all 613 some odd laws that God gave his people? What's the point in all of that? And, and so I've heard it described this way, that the law is sort of like, it's like a mirror. And uh, I, all of you did this this morning. You woke up and you got out of bed and you stepped into the bathroom and then you did what? You looked in the mirror, right? And you, your first reaction was like, eh. It's always, eh. Nobody, nobody looks at the mirror in the morning and is like, yeah. It's always like, ugh. I mean, because the lines are on your face and, you know, your hair is all jacked up, you know. And you just, I don't know, I feel like you look weird after laying sideways in a bed for eight hours. Everything's just kind of bizarre. And so you know that there's some work to be done before getting out in front of people, right? And so you did. You didn't just show up here. Some of you did, right? And you're elbowing your, this guy didn't, right? So, um, but, but for most of us, we do something to kind of get cleaned up so that we can go out in public. People can, can see us. And, and so the law is sort of like a mirror for our lives. Paul wants people to know it, it shows us our desperate need for righteousness outside of our own doing. Our desperate need for help, our desperate need for righteousness. And so when you look into the law and all of these righteous requirements of God— Nobody, if you're honest with yourself, reads that and says, I think I got this. I think I'm good. I I think I can handle this. In fact, if you're honest, you read it and you realize how far from perfect you are, how much you need a Savior. And so the purpose of the law was never, ever to make people right before God. It was never to, to fix you up or to clean you up. The law is powerless to do what grace can only do. And so, so Paul wants to start off by saying, listen, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they do what? They bear witness to it. They, they show you what this righteousness is going to look like. They give you a taste of what it's going to look like. So the law and the prophets always speaking to God's righteous requirements of his people. So again, this was, this was probably really offensive for them to hear. This was probably an explicit sort of grace that they were hearing about. In verse 22, it says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, so first he says the law is sort of like the mirror, and so Jesus Christ would sort of be like the sink, right? So you're standing there at the mirror, your face is all jacked up, and your hair's all a mess, and you're like, how am I going to fix this? And you look down, and there's a sink, right? And so the sink is there to help clean you up so that you can be presentable to your friends at church, right? And so, so essentially the law is like the mirror and then Jesus is like the sink to, to clean us out. The problem is when people get those things mixed up. They think, oh, the law is like the sink. The law is going to clean me up before God. The law is going to make me right before God. No, Paul wants us to know that it was never intended to do that. It was only going to show us our desperate need for a Savior. Okay, so the law is like a mirror. Jesus is like the sink, and he goes on to talk about who gets this. You get Jesus through faith in Jesus, not faith in what you do. Essentially, he's asking them to transfer your faith from what you've done to Jesus. 
What is that thing that you've been resurrecting, that you've been holding on to, that, that thing that you're using to attain some sense of rightness and righteousness before God? He's like, hey, transfer the faith that you have in that thing, whatever it may be, over to Jesus and what he's already accomplished for you on the cross. He goes on, he says, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Did you learn that one in, like, as a kid? In Awanas, I remember learning that one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The context of this is Paul is trying to make sure everybody knows that you're all in this together. You're all essentially the same. Like, who gets a leg up on somebody else? Nobody does. Because there is no distinction. If you've been in the church for your entire life, and you're a good church kid, and you do all the right things, and you follow all the rules, or you're here today, and you don't feel like you belong here. Maybe you look around, and you're like, I am probably the worst person in this room. What Paul is saying is, we are all the worst. We are all equally in desperate need of a Savior. We are all equally not, you know, on life support. We are dead in our sins, equally in, in, in desperate need of a Savior. So nobody gets a leg up on anybody else. It's not survival of the fittest. Like if, if you're just a little better than the person next to you, nobody is better than the other. All have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Are justified. So Paul at this point in the, in the conversation is going to get into some legal terms. And he's setting us up sort of like we're in a courtroom. In the first three chapters of Romans, it's been like the, you, you've been on trial. And Paul is laying out all of the reasons that you're guilty. And so the first three chapters, we've realized, okay, this is how guilty we are. And he starts using these legal terms like the term justified. And if you want to write this down, justification is simply to be made or declared righteous. To be made righteous or declared righteous. He says that we are, there, it says that we are justified by his grace as a gift. We are made righteous by his grace as a gift. We were guilty, and all of the evidence has been laid out before us. And if we're honest, if we read through the book of Romans, we see, okay, I cannot attain righteousness apart from, uh, from any help from the outside. I can't do this on my own. I need some kind of outside source to give me righteousness. He says, okay, I'll show you the, the source you can be justified by his grace as a gift. You can be made righteous and cleansed by his grace as a gift. So where does the grace come from? The faith and the grace that we need is a gift. Write that down. The faith that we need is a gift. It's a gift. Now, this is really important, I think, to understand for us, that the faith we need is a gift. Because um, there can be a tendency, I think, to put your faith in your faith, to put your faith in the ability to believe, in your ability to conjure up enough belief in God or, or, or in what you should do. And so here's what this looks like for a lot of Christians. If your faith is in your ability to, to have faith, then what you're going to do is avoid anything that could, could cause you to doubt. Maybe, maybe this is you, maybe you've known Christians like this who avoid difficult questions or maybe difficult passages in Scripture, because you don't want to shake the foundation. Because if you shake the foundation and a little bit of doubt seeps in, maybe you're not saved. Maybe, maybe you don't believe. You know, maybe you're not actually a Christian if you have a little bit of doubt. And so you know that you have faith in your faith if you're the kind of person who avoids anything that could cause doubt. 
if you're the kind of person that gets really upset when somebody disagrees with your beliefs. If, if maybe you've, you've heard a sermon or read a book that has a different perspective on your faith and you get mad and you throw the book out, right? You're like, this is a piece of junk, right? Maybe there's a lot of other good stuff, but you just, you, you avoid anything that might cause you to question your beliefs. But what he's saying here is that the, the faith that you need, even the faith that it took for you to step from, from darkness into light, from death into life, was a faith that came as a gift from God. So you know what that means? It's not on you. Even, even your faith isn't on you. Even the faith that it took for you to be saved was a gift from God. So you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be scared of your doubts. You don't have to be scared of difficult questions. I, uh, I sat down with a friend of mine uh, about two months ago, and he wanted to get together. Um, and he's like, hey, I'd like to talk about church and stuff like that. And uh, faith and things. I'm like, oh, that's, that's fine. So we sat down, we started talking, and um, essentially the conversation went um, to the point where he, he kind of broke up with the church. It was like, it was sort of like a I'm breaking up with the church conversation. Um, I, he's like, I, I want to tell you, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. I don't think I believe uh, in God anymore. I just, um, I have too many questions. And so I'm like, well, uh, tell me more. Give me more. Let, let's, let's talk about this. Tell me, what are, your, what are your questions? He's like, I don't know. Like, I don't really know if it's worth even. I'm like, no, that's good. Let's, 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 let's do this. Let's wrestle through these questions. And so he lays out these, these hard questions. We threw out one of them last week. You know, why do, how could a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? That type of thing. And so he walked through all these difficult questions, and he's like, so because I don't have answers to these questions, I'm essentially breaking up with the church. I'm going to stop going to church. I'm not, not going to call myself a Christian. I'm just kind of stepping away from this. And, and I may come back sometime, but for right now, I don't, I don't think I want to be a part of it. And what broke my heart is that, um, first, that we hadn't talked sooner. Um, and, and I didn't walk into this conversation thinking I could answer every question. Um, there is a lot of mystery about God that, um, that, that I can't answer, that I, I don't know how to, how to help make sense to you. But many of the questions that he had about Christianity were really good questions, like really valid questions that were worth wrestling through. And not things that necessarily I can give a, a, a nice packaged answer to, but things that I could say, here's how I think through this. Here's a way to see this through the lens of the entirety of Scripture that still makes God into a loving God. Here's maybe a twist of, of this question, or maybe here's a better question than that question. But he'd never had those conversations or never leaned into the opportunities that we have to have those conversations. And so essentially he was breaking up with the church, walking away as best as he could uh, from his faith. And I want you to know this today. Um, we, we are a church that welcomes doubt because we all have doubt. And, and you can't talk about doubt without talking about the man with, the, with the, the, the epileptic son who looks at Jesus and says, you know, I believe, but help my unbelief. He was able to admit that he, that he had doubts before Jesus. I've got belief, but the reality is I have doubts too. And that's okay. We, we all do. We all have doubts. That's why we have ACF groups. That's why I have men and women getting together throughout the week, spending time together, wrestling through questions. I love it when I hear about a group who's like, yeah, we were studying the, the I was broke now, I'm not financial study for like two minutes, and then somebody launched into a really difficult life question, and then we all opened our Bibles, and, and we just talked about that for an hour and a half. I love it when those things happen, where people just get into it and have good conversation. So you need to know this, that doubt isn't something to be feared. This book can handle your scrutiny. 
Don't be afraid to pick apart this book. In fact, you know what? That's called maturity. Is actually being able to have answer for difficult questions in your faith. You should pick it apart. And if this is true, it can handle it. If it's not true, then it can't. But I believe it is true and that it can handle it. So ask really good, really good questions. The faith that we need is a gift. So next question you might have is, how long does it take to receive this gift? Like, is it, is it a process? Is it a journey to, to, to receive this justification before God? Romans 5.1, um, it's not on the screen, but you can write that down and look it up later. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes, since you've been justified, then you get peace. That's really good. That's good news. Do you know a lot of people with peace right now? Do you see people around in your world that are just walking around feeling peaceful about things? He says, once you're justified, you have peace. So write this down. Salvation is instantaneous, not progressive. Salvation, if you're wondering, like, how long does it take to be saved? Is this like a journey? Uh, You know, is it a process? You need to know this. It's instantaneous. You are justified before God, made righteous before God in a moment. The very moment that you, by faith, follow him is the very moment that you are justified before a holy God. This is a really big deal that you get this. This is a really important piece of theology to understand because there are a lot of Christians going through life seeing salvation as a process. If it's a process, then you can never be sure that you're saved. You can never lay your head down on your pillow at night and go, I know that although I am a mess and I make mistakes, I have been given grace as a gift. I've been given faith as a gift. And because it's a gift from God, he's not going to take it away. I am safe in his arms. Like, don't you want that? And when you, when you receive that, you know what that results in? Peace. You can live life in peace. You don't have to worry anymore. And now all of the, the things that you do, every time you serve somebody, help somebody, live sacrificially, choose holiness, you do it not to earn something, but as a response to the gift that God has given you. That's, that is really, really good news. Here's a question just to think about this. Any uh, people in, in the room here today, uh, like, would you consider yourself like half married? Anybody like partially married in the room? Quarter married? some elbowing, like you better raise your hand, right? Anybody like sort of married in the room? No, of course not, right? You're not ever sort of married, partially married. Uh, if you go to a wedding ceremony, you know that marriage happens at this, this pronouncement. At the end of the marriage ceremony, whoever it is, the pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And in that moment, you go from being two single people to one married couple, Right? And so in the Bible, God talks about his church like, the, like a bride. Like we're the bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. And there's this beautiful union that happens when we put our faith in him that now we are like married to him in this, this beautiful, unbreakable bond. Now here's the problem when it comes to that. There are a lot of people who are married to God, but living like they're, like they're not married. They're walking through life like, I don't know if we're really married. I don't know. Like, I hope that I can save the marriage. I hope I can do enough good works that maybe God will keep me around. And, you know, maybe it's this long process of making sure that I'm married. No, you're, you're married, right? It's done. You are justified by his grace. And when it's done, it's done. 
And so, so you don't want to be married to God and living like you're not. Just like you don't want to be, you know, not married and living like you are. You don't want to actually think, okay, well, if I can do enough good and act good, but I haven't actually put my faith in God, then maybe I'm saved. No, only by grace through faith can you be saved. We want to know that we're married. It happens in an instant. Next question that might, might come up if you're walking through this is, what does it take for a sinful person to be justified? What does it take? How does this happen? He continues on. He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we're still in the courtroom. We're on the stand. All the evidence has been laid out. We are guilty, but we can be justified by grace through faith. He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to give you some 10 cent seminary words. Is that cool? We're going to get a little theological here. So redemption simply means paid for. It just means to be paid for. The redemption through the payment that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a good word, right? A good theology word. Propitiation simply means to satisfy a debt. Okay, so we were guilty and, and totally like in, in debt up to our eyeballs. We could not get out of this position that we found ourselves in. But through Christ Jesus, he makes a payment that satisfies the debt. We are taken care of. Now, this would have been made a lot of sense, this language to people in their day. In this agricultural society, it would have taken no time at all to get into debt up to your eyeballs. Well, I guess today it's the same way, right? Just get a credit card. You can, in, in two signatures in 20 minutes, be in debt up to your eyeballs, right? And so for these people, a lot of times you would get into debt to the point that you actually had to sell yourself into slavery to the person you were in debt to. But then there was this, this, this awesome opportunity for somebody called a kinsman redeemer to buy you out of your debt that somebody else could come in and they could pay for your debt and set you free. And so this idea of redemption paid for by Jesus, a propitiation which satisfies the debt, this would have made a lot of sense to them. Like, oh, I get it. My buddy George, he was in debt and somebody like bought him out of his, his debt and now he's free. And for us, we, we get this too. I mean, what would it be like if somebody just showed up today and they're like, hey, you want your house paid off? Done, Right? Woo! You'd be excited, right? Raising your hands during worship. I mean, you would not be able to contain yourself, right? And that's what it's like. That's what he's saying is Jesus shows up. And like a kinsman redeemer, he shows up and he pays for our debt. He satisfies the debt. So as I was studying this, another question that came up in my head um, that might show up in your head is, is, so God is fully just, right? Like, God always does the right thing. So we just laid out that you are completely guilty. You're up, you're, you are at the stand, and all the evidence is laid out, and it is clear. You're guilty. And then Jesus shows up and somehow buys you out of your debt? So, like, the question is, how could a just God acquit the guilty and justify the ungodly? How, how, how is that justice? How could that possibly happen. If God is a just judge, why would he allow that? I, I ran across this great quote from a guy named German, John Murray. He says, God loved the objects of his wrath so much 
that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make a provision for the removal of his wrath. You confused yet? Let me read it again. God loved the objects of his wrath. Who's that? Us. So much that he gave his own son. Who's that? Jesus. To the end that by his blood should make a provision for the removal of his wrath. When you sin, when you do whatever it is that you do that you know is wrong, you know, you don't just sin against the people around you or sin against yourself. You know who you sin against? God. We are guilty before God. Ultimately, we have sinned against God himself. So God is the one that holds our fate in his hands. And so the only way a just God could possibly acquit the guilty would be for he himself to pay for our sins because we have sinned against him. So the only just thing that could possibly happen would be for him to die. Jesus, right? Then shows up Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. We know everything that we need to know about God by looking at the life of Jesus, the sacrificial life that he lived, giving up his life for our sins. Write this down. God wasn't indifferent to our sin. He was wounded for our sin. A lot of people say this about their faith. You might say, I, I read in the Bible somewhere that God doesn't count my sins. Right? God doesn't count my sins. Is that true? No, it's not true. No, your sins were counted. They didn't just disappear. He didn't just wink at your sin and look the other way like, oh, I'm just going to act like it's not happening. That's not what happened with your sin. He, he took it upon himself. Everything you did do, everything you're doing now, and everything you will do in the future was taken upon Christ Jesus. And so when you think about it and you go through your life, that changes how you live, doesn't it? If you're like, yeah, I think my sin just went away. No, it didn't. It went upon Christ. It was paid for by his sins. It didn't just disappear. He wasn't indifferent to our sin. He was wounded for our sin. That's a good God, isn't it? That's a good God. Now, this is cool. In, in John 15, I was, I was reading this this week. Jesus makes this statement. He says, they hated me without a cause. Jesus, when he went to the cross, you know he was innocent, right? I mean, there was never anybody in the world that was more innocent than Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross without a cause. Essentially, his gift, the gift that Jesus got from us, was crucifixion, was death. So there was never anybody, it has been never anybody who's lived who's been more innocent than Jesus. And Jesus' gift was death. So think about this. To the same degree that Jesus deserved death, is the degree to which we deserve life. Think about that. The same degree Jesus deserved death is to the same degree that we deserve life and grace and peace. I mean, that, that, when you get that, when you realize, okay, I was totally guilty, totally deserving of death, of what Jesus got. He took the death and gave me life and peace everlasting. When you realize how different those two things are, you start to well up with a little bit of gratitude, don't you? Like it starts being better news. Like all this Jesus stuff starts being something that actually makes a difference in our lives when we catch this. Here's what I want you to do. Here's my call to you. I want you to receive God's love. I also want you to remember his justice. 
Receive God's love today, but remember his justice. When I was first dating my wife, Amanda, um, her parents invited me out to dinner, which is just what you do, right? Got to get to know the new guy. Um, and so they invited me out, Texas Roadhouse. I'm very excited. And uh, I, you know, obviously accepted the invitation. I was really excited about that. Now, growing up in my family, um, when we would go out to eat, it was a really big deal. It didn't happen very often. And, and it was kind of just a big deal enough to go out to eat that when you went out to eat, it was like water with lemon and uh, you definitely didn't order appetizers, and you probably got the soup, right? You just, but you're out to eat, so mom didn't have to cook, and it's cool, and we just didn't really spend a whole lot of money on going out to eat. Now, we go out with her family. We sit down at the table, and the first thing is they're like, hey, a couple of the blooming onions, a couple appetizers. Let's get drinks all around. Let's, you know, have a great night here, and I'm just like, are you serious? And so then it's time to order, and I'm like, I don't know what to do, right? I don't know these people. I'm just trying to figure out how to, you know, keep dating their daughter. And so, you know, they start ordering their meals. And I remember her dad orders like this big old steak. And then the mom orders a big old steak. And then my girlfriend orders a big old steak. And it comes to me and I'm like, uh, I'll take some bread, sticks, maybe some soup. Or, and they're like, what's wrong? Get a steak, man. And I'm like, it's $18. Like, really? Can we do that? And they're like, yeah, get a steak. It's fine, you know. And, and so sure enough, you know, I ordered steak and enjoyed dinner with them. And I'll never forget that feeling of like, is this, this feels wrong. Like, is this okay to do this? And I don't know. Like, I want to impress them a little bit. And so I don't want to just, you know, put them in the poorhouse because of my stupid steak. And, but they were like, buy a steak. Almost like it was going to offend them if I didn't get a steak. And... I was just thinking about that. It's, it's kind of like God's love that way. It's God's looking at you and he's like, listen, I paid a lot so that you could live free. And so I want you to receive it. Like, I want you to have this. Don't resist it. You're not, you're not like blessing God by resisting his love. You're not paying a little bit for your sin by resisting his love. You, you're not helping God with justice by hating yourself. No, Jesus says, I have paid for your sin. Just receive my love. And that's hard for some of you because you just have grown up trying to achieve and trying to earn and trying to work for what you've got. Uh, maybe in your own life in general, you're just the kind of person that you never feel like you're enough. You never feel like you deserve anything. And Jesus looks at you and he's like, hey, I know you didn't deserve it but I paid for it, so receive it. Receive it with open arms, but remember his justice. Remember, remember what was paid. Like, can you imagine had I sat down at the table and I'm like, I'll take the lobster and I'll take the steak and I'll take this and that, and then I got up at the table at the end and I didn't say thank you for the meal and I just left and it's like, yeah, free dinner. You know, I mean, that'd be terrible. It'd be terrible. I mean, in the same way, I think we come before God and we receive his grace and how cheap would it be for us to just kind of walk out and be like, peace, thanks for the dinner, like, thanks for, and to forget, to forget the, the, the blood, sweat, and tears that went in to paying for what you get. I mean, it's the same thing. Her parents, they're not loaded. The man works, his, his, works really hard to pay for them to be able to go out to eat occasionally. But he does it because he loves his family. He does it because he loves them. 
Just like the price that was paid by Jesus, it happened because he wanted to. Isaiah 53 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Like Jesus chose to go to the cross for you. And so he paid a lot for your freedom. So receive it, but remember the cost. Remember what he did for you. And I think in that way, you'll be able to enjoy the meal. I think in that way, when you get there, you're going to be able to enjoy church a little bit more. Be able to enjoy reading your Bible a little bit more. You're going to be able to enjoy worship a little bit more. And I don't know if you love to sing songs in church or if that's a little weird for you, but when you get this into your soul, uh, it's going to make you sing. Even if your voice stinks, it's going to make you sing. It just does because that's, that's how we respond in joy and gratitude. Verse 27 says, then what becomes of our boasting? So if you're telling me this is all about what Jesus did for me, what becomes of our boasting? He says, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. In other words, you've got nothing to boast about because Jesus has done everything. If you read Paul's writings, he's like, you know who I boast in? Jesus. Because I and myself, everything that I have is a total loss. It all is in the ash heap. And so Paul, in his writings, which you read, is a man who has been able to put all of his righteous deeds to death. And been able to say, listen, I know none of it can achieve what Christ has done for me. So no boasting is needed because you can be fully confident in what Christ has done for you. And think about it. Why do people boast? Why can't people eat a steak without it ending up on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, right? And I'm guilty of it too. I do it too. But like, why is it that we have to like let everybody in on the best parts of our lives to show everybody how amazing, you know, our Friday night was? Just get the right angle, you know, and the right filter on it. Like just to make every part of our life look so, why do we boast? Let's be honest. The reason we boast a lot of times is because we lack self-confidence. Because the world has told us that we need to impress other people to feel like we're worth something. That we get some kind of sense of self-worth from somebody else. Jesus says, you know what? No more boasting is needed in your life because you are fully satisfied in what Christ has done for you. And when you're fully satisfied, you don't have to show off. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to be at the mercy of what other people think of you or how many little hearts you get next to your picture, picture on Instagram. Like, it doesn't matter because you can be fully satisfied in Christ and you can be fully at peace with what he has done for you. So no more boasting, no need to lack confidence. You can be fully confident in Christ. Here's my last point. I believe this. I believe the best of my life is a total loss, but Christ is my victor, nothing spared but the cross. The best of our life no matter what it is that you're holding on to, that thing that you're trying to restore as a, as a means to righteousness. And, and the reason this is offensive is because some of you live really good lives and you're doing a lot of really good stuff. And, and, and you show up and you serve and you give money and you, know, you help the needy and you're gracious and you do a lot of really good things. But to truly receive this grace and this faith as a gift means you have to let go of everything that you have, even the good stuff. And lay it down at the side and say, that is not how I achieve righteousness, only by grace through faith. And it's all a gift from Jesus. 
Can we read this together? Can we say this together and own this today? Let's say it together. The best of my life is a total loss, but Christ is my victor. Nothing spared but the cross. Can you say it again? The best of my life is a total loss, but Christ is my victor. Nothing spared but the cross. Philippians 3.8. Paul says he counts all of his life as loss compared to the surpassing greatness that is in Christ Jesus. It's all a loss. And that's where the peace begins, is when you let go of whatever's in your hand so you can receive the one thing that you can't achieve or buy on your own. If you're wondering what to do with all that stuff, if you struggle with self-hatred and, and, and you're trying to figure out how to, how to like yourself, here's the secret. The world will tell you just love yourself more, do more impressive things, put up more pictures on social media. Here's the secret to loving yourself more. It's not, it's not loving what you've done. It's loving what Christ has done. The more you love God, the more you will love yourself because you'll realize your value comes through him. And, and, and all of your self-worth isn't on trial anymore. It's been paid for. You are justified by grace through faith. Receive it and have peace today. Let me pray for us. God, we all have one thing at least that we are holding on to. Um, God, it's the one thing that we use to achieve some sense of rightness before you and before others. It's the thing that we choose to get our sense of identity and self-worth from. And God, we think maybe if we do it well enough, maybe we'll feel good about ourselves. Maybe we can have peace. God, I pray today could be the day that we leave it on the ash heap, that we let it burn. We realize, God, in the end, the only thing good about us is you. God, you are what's good about us. And because of that, God, we have intrinsic, ultimate worth. And now, God, in you, we can do things that matter. And we can do them not to prove something to anybody, God, what we can do then because you have proved everything on the cross already. So I pray you'd give some peace to somebody here today that needs some peace. I pray you'd give some assurance to somebody here today who's, who's constantly trying to earn their salvation that they could go to bed tonight knowing, God, it is paid for. They are justified and it happened in a moment. Maybe somebody here today knows that, that they're really good on the outside, but on the inside, things are just a wreck. They've never truly let go of what they have to receive what you have. God, I pray today could be the day that they step from death into life and receive your grace and your faith as a gift. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks.